Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we speak about the fallout from the US banking crisis, what it means for global growth, and what, if any, opportunities are emerging. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Ken Little, Managing Director, Investments Group at Brandy's Investment Partners, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street, bringing you the latest from Investment Frontline, from the Investment Frontline, with the range of experts we have access to. As regular listeners will know, when it comes to putting together our all-in-one global pieces of investment exposure, we draw on the work of a range of experts, some inside Barclays, some outside. This week, we're mixing them together again. So we have Ken Little from the famous US fund management house, Brandy's, and Ken's fund specialises in value stocks. So we've got him in here to grill him on all sorts of topical issues from banks to energy companies. And then as usual, we have Will, our CIO on. So Will, let's start off with the latest news. Markets so far seem a little bit more settled this week, but again, a potential disconnect between markets and what they're saying about the outlook for global growth. Maybe? What do you think? Yes, good question. It's been a bit quieter, but still pretty eventful. I, you know, I think one thing, like you say, is that this kind of 2008 muscle memory is still working overtime in a way. So people are understandably suspicious and looking for candidates um, that could cause a repeat of that global economic heart attack, that very memorable global economic heart attack for all the wrong reasons. Um, so commercial real estate, or at least certain segments of it are, you know, been centre stage this week at the moment. Delinquencies had been picking up in this area anyway in the US. And there are a number of factors here, particularly a very slow return to office work in many important cities in the US. And that is potentially going to worsen that story, given what's going on in the US regional bank sector. So the question is kind of, you know, how bad and wide will it get? And at first glance, like you say, the market reaction looks a bit inconsistent in a way. So bond and commodity markets imply a hit to US growth, a relatively manageable hit, a bit but a hit all the same. So commodity prices down and quite a few of the expected interest rates taken out of market pricing in terms of the bond market. However, equities for their part are overall kind of pretty resilient. So some sectors have suffered a little bit. Now, you can make this sorry, getting to your answer, getting to your question. I just needed to sort of explain all that. But the answer to your question, I think, is you can make it marry up as a narrative if you like, essentially arguing that the problem is relatively contained with limited spillover to other sectors from commercial real estate. So far, the quoted equity market, the big companies that really make up the index, you get a bit less of that, you know, of a hit to their growth prospects. But you get the benefit from a valuation perspective of a slightly less hostile central bank. It's a narrow path that the market seems to be taking if you look across all, all the asset classes. But I guess it's a way of making the various moves across the asset classes marry up a little bit. Long-winded start, but I hope you understand what I mean. No, no, thanks for that. I think sometimes you need a bit of a longer explanation. But Ken, let's get you in. Maybe you could help us with the epicenter of this current crisis, which seems to be regional banks and certain aspects of commercial real estate, particularly office space. How worried are you and what do you hold in the in this space? 
Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned the word epicenter. If I look out my office window, I see the uh, headquarters of Silvergate Bank, which was literally the <laughs> epicenter of where the wow. uh, deposit outflows and the banking crisis started here in the U.S. a few weeks ago. And it was really, you know, I think a lot of the focus has been on SVB and what's happened there and the causes of, of the deposit fight there was the concentration in the uh, in the venture capital sector. At Silvergate, it was really concentration serving the, the crypto industry. So we're reminded of it every day in terms of when we come into the office. So it's an interesting place to have a perspective of. But it's definitely you know front of mind for us when we see how fast the deposit flows happened, whether it's SVB or some of the other regional banks over the last few weeks. It's clearly a different world today than it was in the past. So it's, it's certainly top of mind for us and, and something that that we're talking about all the time and, and thinking about with our portfolio. We have a fairly meaningful exposure to banks in general in our in our U.S. portfolio, about 15%, but it's really spread between a, a few different types of banks. You know, we have the large money center banks, which are really kind of global financial institutions. They've actually been net beneficiaries of the crisis in terms of flows of deposits. So they've held up very well and look very good in that, that environment. The second area for us has been the, the trust banks, which are big custodians of, of asset managers like us and, and yourselves. They are a very different animal in terms of what their business model is. You know, most of their revenues derive from fees as opposed to interest spreads. And so their, their deposit base seems much stabler. And then the third area for us has really been the regional banks. Uh, and that's the smallest area for us, but it's it's the one that certainly has been the most focused. We've primarily been focused on the largest of the regional banks, which you know some people term super regionals. And these are very big banks. I mean, right, you know, in the, the top 10 in, in the US in terms of asset size, uh, really right below the uh the money center banks. And so They've been much more stable because of their deposit base being much more diversified, their lending base, their their customer base in general is much more diversified than the high profile ones that you've seen in the news a lot. So it's definitely a, a focus for us, but we feel pretty good about where we're exposed in the sector right now. What about commercial real estate? Yeah, so that's the, I would say, after the, the focus on the deposit flows over the last few weeks, people have quickly turned to you know, what is the other risk in the banks? And they've they focused now not so much on the liquidity side, but the asset side of the, the balance sheet of the banks, and most of all on, on commercial real estate. And that's a, a bit of a mixed bag. If you, if you think about commercial real estate exposure of the banks, the biggest exposures, at least from a relative sense, tend to be in the very small kind of regional banks. And we, we don't have any exposure to those right now, partly because that is an area of concern for us. Will touched on some of the dynamics, and we can go into that in more detail of why commercial real estate, particularly the office sector, is challenging. But if we think about the larger banks, commercial real estate in general is, is less than a quarter of their loan books. And then if you think about office as a percentage of that, tends to be in the, the 10 to 15% range. So putting that all together, commercial real estate exposure for the, the large banks isn't a, a huge number, um, still something to, to keep an eye on, but not as much exposed there as you would be if you're, you're owning the small regional banks where that commercial real estate and commercial development tends to be a much bigger part of their business models. And do you think the problems we are seeing in some of the sectors with commercial real estate will spill over? I mean, are you worried about contagion and kind of the impact on other areas? 
Yeah, I think I think it's certainly going to impact other areas, and I think there's some that are more that more direct than others. Certainly, the the direct property owners. So, if we think about the REITs, particularly those that are focused on office space, will be impacted, given the trends of occupancy and delinquencies and leases in the U.S. They're exposed, but you know other participants are exposed as well. If you think about the brokerage industry, for instance, that are serving tenants and and landlords, to the extent there's a lower amount of transactions, there'll be negative impacted. You think about some of the insurance companies, particularly the life insurance companies, that real estate has been a pretty big part of their portfolio, given the the long-term nature of those investments. Those could be impacted as well. And then Finally, if you think about the construction side, particularly the heavy construction side that feeds into commercial development, you know, those could be negatively impacted as you start to see the amount of development and new construction start to tail off. I would say the one part that offsets that a little bit in the U.S. is a number of those companies also have pretty meaningful exposure to infrastructure builds. And, and we think the infrastructure outlook looks quite a bit better in the U.S. So that, that could offset some of that for those companies. It's good to hear. Maybe we'll let's move back to you. I know we've been looking at European banks with more focus than before in the last couple of weeks in particular. Forgive me for the question, but do you think that's an angle that could spark a repeat of 2008? Almost like you're nostalgic for it, Sarah, but no, I know you're not. But I'm yeah. not nostalgic <laughs> for it, but I do remember it well, and it is coming back a little well, bit more yes. at the moment, isn't it? I know, it's it's more like PTSD, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I mean, I think the first thing is that you know that I'm always wary of kind of historical comparisons. The idea here is that I love historical comparisons, but I'm but wary of using you're them. Wary of them. <laughs> <laughs> I use them all the time, but I think I would say be wary of how you apply them, to be more precise. The point is that it's not just different this time, it's subtly different, sometimes profoundly different every single time. So it's different this time aren't the foremost dangerous words in investing, they're, they're just a truth. And I think that is invariably what a close study of history really illustrates is that difference. Uh, and this time is different. So the quality of the asset base, not just in European banks, but globally, the strength of the supervisory and regulatory framework and how it's been variously implemented. They're mostly night and day with regards to 2008 and today. There are fresh threats too, admittedly. Ken mentioned there, the, you know, the sort of sheer speed, you know, the, the proliferation of online banking and social media clearly make for a more febrile deposit base, which is something that regulators and supervisors will need to consider. But I think overall, you know, we can take some reassurance in Europe, certainly from the kind of size of the regulatory buffers, the, the size of the liquidity and balance sheet buffers relative to 2008. Well, interesting thing, though, just to show how worried investors are at the moment. So you saw a sharp sell-off in, on last Friday uh, in European banks, and that was rumoured to be triggered by just one quite large bet on, on Deutsche Bank, basically sort of, you know, insuring against default. And so there was a sort of large bet in one direction that triggered off a little bit of worry that people were worried about commercial real estate exposure for one particular bank. And that had quite a sharp effect widely. So it does show that people are worried a little bit, but there has been a bit more calm uh, returning to market so far this week. But yeah, it's a it's an interesting an interesting moment, but I would say it's different this time, and hopefully, really importantly, so. I also think actually that the response from the authorities has already been very different, just in the sheer kind of muscularity and immediacy. They haven't had much thinking time, to be honest, but they have learned the lessons of the past is that you just can't stand around and wait. If your job is to buttress confidence and trust in the system, you need to do it quickly and and forcefully. So, Ken, let's 
Come back to you. And actually, what I'd love to our listeners to hear about is anything you're excited about in the market at the moment. Yeah, turbulence definitely creates opportunities. We've seen that more recently driven by the financial sector. But if I think back over the last year or two, you know, one of the big dynamics that, that we've seen is the divergence between value and growth that reached record levels over the last couple of years and then reversed quite a bit last year in terms of performance between those two sectors or parts of the market. We still think those spreads, the the difference between the value stocks and the growth stocks are still extremely wide by historical standards. So even though markets in general, if you look at overall valuations of indices, you know, look more reasonably valued, we still think the value part of the market is extremely cheap. And so the types of companies and the types of sectors that we can find in this market still look very attractive. So one, one area that we've had big exposure to and continue to have exposure to is the the healthcare sector. And that cuts across the US and Europe. And it really ranges from the big pharma companies to the service companies. You know, a number of these companies were big beneficiaries during COVID, whether it's the lab companies providing testing, whether it's the the big drug companies providing vaccines. That's continued to be a, a tailwind for those companies. But you know, as people go back to work and, and economies open back up, there's also an opportunity for these number of these companies to benefit as as procedures start to pick back up at hospitals, activity starts to pick back up at, at drug stores. So we still very feel very good about the about the sector in terms of the long term secular growth of healthcare. And then we think you're being able to buy those companies at, at very attractive prices. So it continues to be one of the, the biggest weightings in, in our portfolio today. Well, that's good to hear. And Will, I'm going to ask you the same question. Anything that you and the team are excited or interested in at the moment? Yes, it's a good question. And just Ken talking there, just again, I know I bang on about this a lot, but, you know, Ken's fund is an important part of how we try and build all-weather multi-asset class funds and portfolios. Because as you know, what we're preparing for, not just with our asset allocation, but the way that we implement funds is for futures that don't look like the last 10 years. And, you know, to Ken's point, you can look at this. There's an amazing set of charts you can look at with regards to growth versus value in terms of styles and their performance over the last period. And you can see only, you know, that the recent performance of value really only chips a tiny amount away from that. So potentially there's still a, you know, a much larger way to go in terms of a normalization of value versus growth. But the problem is that we can't predict reliably when those styles are going to outperform or underperform. So that's why we always keep a foot in the dustier corners of the equity market, potentially making sure that we're not just extrapolating from the recent past and saying that trend going to continue. That's why we own sometimes unpopular assets in our asset allocation and why we make sure that we allocate to funds where you've got quality stock pickers like Ken and Co able to find the best opportunities in the areas that sometimes aren't you know, the most popular or the most fashionable. And that's a really important part of how we how we come to market basically and how we, you know, part of our investment philosophy. But in terms of sort of stuff that we're also excited about, I mean, I do think more generally that if you look at the opportunity of investing at the moment, when we went into 2022, there was clearly quite a bit of froth about. There was really too much extrapolation with regards to the path of future inflation and interest rates. There was just an assumption that low inflation, you know, inflation was a beaten foe that our ancestors fought for our benefits. And 
that was reflected in a lot of asset prices and a lot of behaviors. We see that with SVB and, you know, even the sort of pension blowout in London last year. 2022 helped correct a lot of that froth. So both stocks and bonds look more attractive. So your major components of a multi or two of your major components of a multi-asset class fund and portfolio look more attractive. So your expected returns look a bit more attractive. So I will do the cop out and say that actually investing looks a bit more attractive than it does, did. And the other point about it is that not only does access look a bit more inexpensive and therefore attractive to a globally diversified portfolio, but the future has come a little bit closer. So there are some worries about where artificial intelligence, large language models might lead us. Maybe it is just an off-ramp to in the AI story and that we need uh, uh, more to come. But I personally think that there's probably a bit more to be excited about from a productivity perspective. And remember, it is productivity that you are trying to access with a globally diversified portfolio. So the incentive to invest is bigger and the price that you're getting for that, for the ticket to access all of that future innovation, it's come down. So I think that's a very, very attractive moment to take the plunge and stick with it. Self-serving answer as usual. But I like it. Thank you. So just getting back to kind of this week, anything we should be looking out for in the week ahead? I mean, I think, you know, always keeping an eye on inflation data. And I think we go back to that point that, you know, that Ken and I have both been talking about really is that, you know, policymakers have got a bit of a tightrope here and markets have got a bit of a tightrope to walk really, because so far there seems to be this quite benign interpretation of what could happen in terms of commercial real estate and office space. And Ken gave us, you know, very knowledgeable take, which is what we're looking for on uh, on some of the exposures, some of the potential spillover risks. So really now it's a matter of, is the market interpretation the right one? Are those, you know, are central bankers going to pivot to a slightly easier policy? Is inflation potentially a beaten foe? We're going to start to see that relax a little bit. So I think that's the key thing to watch. I think the other thing, if you want to really chimp out, you can look at the Federal Reserve H8 data, which shows all the sort of balance sheet activity of the US commercial banks. It was one we always used to look at quite a lot, scrutinised quite a lot during the last crisis. And it's just worth keeping an eye on deposit flows and so on. Thanks, Will, for that. And thank you, Ken, for joining us today. It's been great to get your external perspective. And thanks to you to our listeners. Look forward to speaking again soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. And their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. 